Amen. You would turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, which is where we're going to be today. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read for us verses 12 through 18. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the days, of, the, the days of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father God, as we approach your word today, would you work in our hearts in the power of your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to lead us towards righteousness, to bring us under submission to your word, that we may delight in the truth and that we may walk in your ways, the path of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Americans have a strange relationship with running. There's many people who picked up running when they were young and they never stopped. They're very disciplined. They're committed to running in all kinds of weather and all kinds of distances. And frankly, I don't understand you people. The people I really understand are the opposite. You never run. I don't even feel like I need to list the reasons for that because you've realized it's awful. You're not obligated by anybody to do it. And so you don't. But then there's this large middle section, which I'm a part of, which is, I will run if you can give me a good enough incentive to do so. Twice over the last two years, I've participated in a Thanksgiving morning 5K, and both times it was well below freezing. Now, what was my incentive for doing so? Well, first of all, you got clothes which announced to the world that you participated. Secondly, you got a cinnamon roll at the end, which was great. Thirdly, you have a guilt-free nap during the day because you're so tired from all, expending all the energy. And then you have a guilt-free gorging yourself of all, as much Thanksgiving food as you want because you burned off so many calories that morning because it doesn't actually have to be true to be an incentive. It just has to be enough to convince myself that it's true. See, those in this category are definitely not interested in, in looking back over time, or the time spent, the endurance, the perseverance, and seeing that all the effort over time was worth it in retrospect, that in the end, the effort was not in vain. Instead, many of us are people who just need to see it up front. And I know I'm not alone in this middle section because it seems all over the place over the last few years, there's been the bacon run, the cupcake run, the craft beer at every mile, donuts at every mile, or my personal favorite, hiring people dressed as zombies to chase you for three miles. 
There's a big portion of our society that says, I am not going to run unless there are immediate temporal rewards for doing so. It doesn't really matter what it is. It just needs to be something that helps me forget why I started running in the first place. Why are my legs so tired? Why do my feet hurt? What is this pain in my side? Give me anything that will help me forget why I started running so I can be distracted until it's over. Now, when it comes to your Christian life, why did you start running the race? What was it that got you into this race, and will it be enough to sustain you till the end? Unfortunately, Americans also try to make gimmicks for Christianity. All around us in our culture are false promises about the Christian life. Become a Christian and you won't get sick. You'll get a promotion at work. It'll start raining money on you because of your obedience. You'll know who to vote for. You'll have a perfect marriage. Your children will be obedient and you will be happy all the time. And we look for these temporary rewards, and then all of a sudden we wake up and we're in the middle of a race, and everything is hurting, and you don't know where the next water station is, and the things that got you in are not getting you through. What is going to sustain your faith to get you through to the end? Now, in all of Philippians, Paul is basing his encouragement and his exhortation to the church on what God has done. He is showing us that the obedience of the Christian life comes as a worshipful response to the work that God is doing. Take these verses, for example. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God started the work. He will finish his work. And then the verses we just read, 12 and 13, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work out of response to the work that God started and continues in us. If we are running this race thinking, I started this, I can finish this, we're going to burn out. Our work cannot sustain us. If we're thinking, I can finish this because look at all the benefits I'm receiving, we're going to be severely disappointed when trials arise, and when we are called to suffer for the name of Christ. Because God is working in us, that gives us the strength to run the race. Let's read verse 14 together. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What I want to make clear in this sermon is how Paul, in these brief verses, is showing us how we are to act in the present based on what God has done in the past and what awaits us in the future. I'll say that again. Paul is showing us how we are to act in the present based on what God has done in the past and what awaits us in the future. So when he begins here with this command, do all things without grumbling or questioning, we could just take this at face value. We, we could talk about how it's just a simple moral obligation of the Christian life, a kind of how to live virtuously. This sermon could take the form of a motivational talk, and I could tell you that people who have a positive outlook on life achieve greater things. You know, you, you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar, you know. However, if you're a student of Scripture, you will see that there is more going on here. 
Paul uses the words grumbling and blameless children of God on purpose to call themes back from Scripture. In particular, Paul wants the hearers to remember the Israelites coming out of the Exodus. Something we need to understand about themes of Scripture is that arguably one of the most important stories of Scripture is the Exodus, because it it is simultaneously a history of how God and his relationship with his people brings them out of bondage, and then it's this cycle that gets repeated all throughout the Old Testament, and then it becomes this powerful allegory for the Christian life as well. So let's go through a brief review of that account. Generations before, God had chosen for himself a people, a family, and then they find themselves in Egypt, and in Egypt, God blesses them, he increases their number, and they they grow, but this is seen as a threat to the Egyptians. So Egypt enslaves God's people. Then they cry out to God in their bondage, and God raises up for them a man, Moses, to lead them out of their bondage. And if you recall the story from the Ten Commandments, or from the Prince of Egypt, or countless other retellings of this in popular culture, you know that Egypt refuses to let God's people go at the request of Moses. So God sends plague after plague on the land of Egypt. And the climax of these plagues is the killing of all the firstborn of Egypt, except for those houses that spread the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. So Pharaoh, he relents momentarily, and the Israelites make it as far as the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his army start coming after him again. Then, as though the signs and wonders couldn't get any bigger, God splits the sea in two, and his people walk through on dry land with walls of water on either side of them. And when they get to the other side, and and Pharaoh and his army start coming after them, God closes the water on them, solidifying their destruction and Israel's escape. I want to look back on two verses that speak of these events. Exodus 14.30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then a few chapters later, when God is entering into the covenant with his people, he says this in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These verses show it clearly. Who saved Israel? God did. When God gives commands and calls his people to obedience, it is always informed by what God has already done. And then the Israelites are to respond to that. And I tell you this story in order to get to this point. What happens to the Israelites next? Israel walks on dry land. They see their enemies dead on the seashore. They saw amazing, mighty acts, insane miracles. They sing this song about God's victory. And then for three chapters, Israel is grumbling. They grumble against Moses. They grumble against Aaron. They grumble against God. They grumble about water. They grumble about food. They grumble about water again. 
They grumble, they, the word grumble is used 10 times in just a few paragraphs, including this sentence, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble. The word that is translated as grumble or murmuring in some translations, it's a word that's actually made up in order to mimic the sound that people make when they are complaining. Oh, it's so hot out here. Oh, there isn't any water. At least we had food back in Egypt. Moses doesn't know what he's doing. God gives, saves these people, and then all of a sudden they just become cranky children. Moses, I'm tired. Moses, I'm hungry. No, I don't want crackers. I want meat. If that doesn't preach on Father's Day, I don't know when it will. (laughs) It is easy to say, don't grumble. It's easy to say, stop complaining. It is a whole other thing to get to the heart of the issue here. The Israelites saw God's work. They witnessed the most incredible things that eyes have ever seen. And then moments later they are, God, what have you done for me lately? The root of their grumbling is this cynical heart. And out of that, they begin to start telling God how to do his job. The Israelites grumble. God provides for them. They're ungrateful. They worship other gods. God forgives them. He brings them back. They repent, and then they grumble against God again. And this cycle just continues. At the most severe points, God sends plagues on his own people. He sends serpents to drive them to repentance. And at the high point of rebellion, he opens up the earth and swallows thousands into it. When Paul says, do all things without grumbling or questioning, it should immediately recall to us the heart issue of the Israelites. They witnessed God's work, and when they were called to respond in obedience, they just complained and questioned the God that brought them out of bondage. So when you read these words today, think not, how have I had a negative attitude? How can I count my blessings better today? And think instead, where in my heart am I ungrateful to God for saving me? Where is God calling me to obedience that I am just choosing to complain instead? In what ways am I trying to tell God how to do his job? How am I neglecting my salvation and just complaining and resenting God instead of humbly submitting myself to him? Doing all things without grumbling or questioning means having this sober-minded understanding of the work that God has done and how my obedient response is such a small thing in comparison. When we recall how Christ took on the form of a servant and humbly submitted himself to death on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven and I could be with him for eternity, my obedience is the absolute least thing that I can give. Is there anything the Lord could call me to that is not a worthy response to what he has already done? When Paul brings up grumbling, It is a sober reminder of Israel's failures and an exhortation to not follow in the same course. 
It is also a call to us to remember our salvation when we were deep in bondage to sin that no work or will of man could get us out of. God looked upon our lowly state and he had compassion on us. He sent his own son to pay the punishment for our sins so that we could be brought into his family. The same awe that the Israelites had as they saw the walls of water on either side of them should be the same awe that we have when we consider the cross. We know God was working in the Israelites. We know that his plan was good and true. We know he is faithful to his promises. So let us remember that in whatever circumstance we are in here and now, that God can be trusted. And we can move forward in humble, obedient submission in response to his works. Let's continue on, read the next couple of verses. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the days of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The calling on the church of God is to be blameless and innocent children in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We've already talked about the application of not grumbling as it applies Godward, but now we need to talk about it interpersonally in the church and also how that affects our relationship with the world around us. So let's start by talking about in the church. Let's not forget that in this chapter, Paul has been calling the church to continue in the example that we have learned from Christ. Earlier on, he says, being of the same mind, having the same love, doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If we devote ourselves to grumbling and a critical spirit, we stand opposing God's work in the church. It is very easy to be critical of the church. God is working in each of us individually and shaping us to turn away from our sinful desires and to turn into submission to the Holy Spirit. And inevitably, that brings our sin to the surface so that it can be dealt with. And I'm certain that each of us has had run-ins with somebody else in the church that leads us to walk away murmuring under our breath about that interaction. And I'm also certain that each of us has been the cause of murmuring in another person. The promise that we have about our sanctification, our our growing more like Christ, is that it's God who works in us. Since God is doing that work in each of us, we have the strength to give one another grace because it's been so extended to us in Christ. This allows us to be patient, this allows us to be forgiving. This allows us to not gossip and cause division. Our call to be innocent of these things. It allows us to be used by God as agents of his grace in the church. God uses us to build one another up. And a critical, cynical heart, it's great at poking holes. It's great at at deconstructing. It's really great at pointing out the weaknesses in others but it is unable to be constructive. In order to build up others in Christ, we have to have the hope of change. And that only comes from the gospel. And then this is directly related to how we will act in the world around us. 
Paul tells the church that they shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And he borrows more Old Testament language, this time from Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, which says this, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In the context of Daniel, he's writing in the future sense of what is going to be true after Christ returns. We will shine as stars in the night sky. We will have turned many to righteousness. Paul uses this future reality to tell us what our obedience means here and now. In the world around us, we are to be set apart. What do others see when they look upon your Christian life? Do they see a blameless and innocent child of God? Or do they see a reflection of the crooked world around us? It's difficult to live set apart in a fallen world. And Paul tells us that it means holding fast to the word of life. And this can also be translated as holding forth the word of life, which carries the sense of bringing the word of life to others. And I think both things are true for us. Sometimes holding fast to the word means showing the world what true justice, what true righteousness, what true holiness are. We must show that we care about these things because we have the ultimate standard in Jesus Christ. But sometimes holding fast to the word means that God is going to be working in us about what we believe to be right, but is actually evidence of the crooked generation around us. Holding fast to the word means God gets to challenge my political convictions. God gets to challenge my views on morality. And he gets to show me how to use things like money and power that he's given me. Let's not forget, though, it is God who is working in us. Left to our own devices, we would do only what is right in our own eyes. We know that trajectory that God is working in us to be made more and more like Christ. And because it is his work to be doing so, I can be more diligent to obey that calling. God is doing the work so I can be more loving to my brothers and sisters in the church. God is doing the work so I can hold the word of life to the world around me and call others to obedience to God. Let's finish out this passage here. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul finishes out this section by talking about sacrifice, by talking about suffering, and ultimately joy. It should become evident to us that because God is working in us, we are able to rejoice in suffering. Let's first understand something about the confusing, confusing language that Paul is using here. Philippians has been all about Paul's imprisonment and about suffering for the gospel, but also for the closeness that he feels with the Philippian church in their partnership in the gospel. And it's so much of this closeness that that he sees their suffering is linked. And he speaks here of the sacrificial offering of faith and his own life as a drink offering. 
Now, we have many instances in Scripture where we talk about giving our lives as sacrifice, offering ourselves as sacrifices, much akin to how the animals and grains were offered as in the sacrificial system. And in that system, you'd put the animal or the grain on the altar, and then sometimes you would pour wine over that offering as a drink offering. And Paul is bringing those things together in this passage to talk about how their mutual suffering and sacrifices are linked together in a way that they complement one another. Paul is looking forward to the day of Christ, the return of Christ, that the culmination of all things. And his anticipation is that on that day, he will see the fulfillment of his ministry to the Philippians, and he will know that he did not suffer or labor in vain. And he is urging and encouraging the church to remain steadfast so that their suffering would not be in vain, but instead that they would rejoice together at their united suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the most controversial part of all of this, that the sacrificial offering of faith brings joy and gladness, and it's a call for our rejoicing together. The world around us understands that we should be nice to each other. We, we get a virtuous understanding of, of not grumbling with one another. And even to some degree, the secular world can see some benefit to spiritual pursuit. But the thing that is absolutely foreign to the unbelieving world is that Christians would willingly choose to give over their lives, to choose a course of living that brings no temporal benefit to us, and may instead even bring chastisement, suffering, and death. And unfortunately... That idea seems just as foreign to a lot of Christians as well. We will only understand this from the perspective of eternity. The reason Paul could be in prison for the gospel was because he was looking forward to Christ's return, and he didn't see it as far off, but he felt that it was close, that it was near to him. And he was willing to endure the present suffering because he saw God working his will out in the church for his own good pleasure. The temporary suffering of this life is nothing in comparison with being with God for eternity. So all the more he urges the Philippian church to remain steadfast so that on the day of Christ it will be shown that he did not run in vain. And that's what faith is. That in the moment it could seem like it was in vain. In the moment the suffering is great. But it's anticipating what the end will be that shifts the perspective on the present. And Paul is so confident in the rejoicing that is to come and for all the work that God is doing in their midst that he says, let's rejoice in that now. Let it be to our present joy that we suffer now. God's work bringing his kingdom is so much more and so much better that if it be the case that my whole life is poured out, so be it. So be it. Paul is trying to get the church to see that it is for our joy that we must be obedient even to the point of suffering. That when we choose grumbling or complaining, we are robbing ourselves of joy. When we choose to look more like the world rather than like Christ, we are robbing ourselves of joy and we are robbing the culture around us of a joy of being made like Christ. When we look at the world around us, we can see that the tide is changing. Christians have fallen out of favor with the culture at large. 
And not to be too alarmist here, but in America, we've hardly begun to see any form of persecution. But this is just another mile in the race. It's not a call to political action. It's a call to humble obedience to God. It's a, it's a call to love and care for the church. It's a call to evangelize and disciple the world. And at the slightest hint of reproach on our Christian faith, we don't surrender. We don't retreat. We don't get cynical and grumble. We must push on ahead because there is joy to be had in the humble, obedient worship of our God. Do we believe what Paul is saying here? Like Paul and the Philippians, am I willing to lay down my entire life as an offering for God's work to be done here and now? Do we see that, that we've been entrusted with the words of life to hold out to the crooked and wayward generation around us? And are we willing to face rejection of friends, neighbors, and coworkers in order to gain the everlasting joy of knowing that we did not run in vain? Because God is the one working in us. We can be sure of the rejoicing to come at the day of Christ. And that gives us reason to rejoice here and now in our obedience to Him. The true Christian life cannot have gimmicks that get us to run it. The incentive is that God is working in us every step of the way. And the finish line is one that we can only see by faith. The only guarantee is that it is going to be hard work every step of the way, every mile, and it will cost us our lives to run it. But this is a race that is established by God's own work. And out of response and reverent worship to Him, I can run this race without grumbling. I have the strength to shine like the stars in the blackness of night. And I can rejoice with every difficulty because it is God who is working in me for His own pleasure. Let's pray together. Lord God, we need you to shape our hearts. We need you to bring change in us. To where maybe what we know to be true does not match up to our actions. What we know to be true does not match up to where our heart is at. And we need you and the power of your Holy Spirit to change us, to shape us more like Christ. And out of response to that work that we know you are doing in us, Bring us deeper in submission and obedience to you, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.